Hello, and welcome to the Keep Singing Podcast, Rambling Dead Edition. It is I, your host, Sunny, also known as Dynamic Symmetry on Twitter and Tumblr and many other places. Uh, and as you may be able to hear, I'm doing something a little different today. Um, last last time I, I had the windows open because it was a beautiful day, and you could hear a lot of birdsong, and that didn't seem to bother people, and not only did it not bother people, but some of you really uh, seemed to like enjoy identifying the birds you could hear in the background. So it is another absolutely beautiful day here just outside Washington, D.C. God knows how many more of these we're going to get before summer really sets in and starts pounding our heads into the ground. So I've dragged my microphone and my husband's laptop out to the patio, and I'm just fucking recording out here. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be birds, and uh, maybe some of you will have fun identifying those again. And uh, also bees, because I've got carpenter bees like a few yards away from me. Uh, I Thank God I don't own this house, because they are just going crazy outside, right outside my front door. And uh, yeah, not my problem, unless the roof falls in. But yeah, there's, there's also a lot of buzzing. So anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, you can sort of enjoy this beautiful day from a distance with me. And, and you know, we'll have a good time talking about season one, episode three, Tell It to the Frogs. Which, I okay, like last episode, I you know, I make notes as I watch. And last episode, my notes were pretty short. I, I didn't really have a lot to say. Uh, my notes are quite long. <laughs> I, I have a lot to say about this. Uh, before I get started with that, just a reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast, if you enjoy the other fandom things I do, if you enjoy the professional things I do, uh, you can help me keep doing that. You can help me justify the amount of time I put into it, which again is like not tiny. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash dynamic symmetry. Give me a couple bucks a month. Super helpful. You can get some stuff in return for that. You can also get to that link on the top of my Tumblr blog, dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com. And there's also a link where you can buy me a coffee if you don't want to do the Patreon thing. So yeah, you know, any little any little tips in my tip jar uh, help me keep this going. And uh, if you've been doing that, I appreciate it so, so much. And, you know, if you don't want to do that, uh, just you can spread the word about this. You can reblog. You can recommend it to people who you think might enjoy it. Uh, not even necessarily people in the ship, because again, the recap that I'm doing, the episode by episode recap, is not necessarily ship focused, although there will be some shipping content as we get closer to where that actually starts to come into play on the show, because, you know, there kind of can't not be. But yeah, I've got tea. Uh, once again, boring English breakfast tea fortified with vitamins. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and get to it. So yeah, tell it to the frogs. Uh, okay, so the the pilot, as I mentioned back when you know we were talking about the pilot, the pilot comes out swinging. I really enjoy the pilot. The second episode, again, I, I didn't have a whole lot to say about it. It was fun, you know. It was a, it was a cool kind of way to continue the momentum that the pilot set up. But I, it, it wasn't that. Deep. Not, not, not a lot really happened in terms of deep character work or deep world building. It was just kind of an adventure story. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it did a lot to introduce some important characters, but other than that, you know, it just was a lot of running around Atlanta and, and you know, doing shit. So I, I didn't have a ton to say about that. This episode is really important for a lot of reasons. I mean, one of the other reasons why I have... Jesus Christ. Yeah, sorry about the traffic noise, guys. I'm not that close to the road, but sometimes there are... Super loud trucks. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, you you probably know that Daryl's my fave, and this is where Daryl makes his first appearance. So I have a lot of uh, squealing to do about that. But I have a lot of squealing to do about a lot of different stuff. Um, first of all, so when they first get back, 
and Glenn is driving his incredibly cool car with the burglar alarm blaring and everybody gets mad at him for that and like okay I mean this is just I'm, I'm just kind of rambling as I go down my notes which were kind of made randomly as I saw things that I wanted to react to I was like lay off Glenn guys I mean you know if yeah, it wasn't the smartest move, but on the other hand, he was in the car. How exactly else was he supposed to get back to the camp? And he didn't know how to turn off the car alarm. It's This is not a guy who's really made it his business to steal cars. Just, you know, stop yelling at him for it. You know, and Dale, I think it says, like, you know, wouldn't kill you to think things through. He was thinking things through. Glenn's, like, one of Glenn's major character things in the first season, at least, is that he thinks things through. You know, he, he also acts according to instinct, but his instincts are usually very good. And he's very good at coming up with plans on the fly. He thinks a lot. Glenn is a super bright guy. So, guys, just, like, come on, fucking lay off. Jesus. Also, that car, I, the, the part where he's sad about them stripping the car for parts was so sweet. It was, you know, yeah. I, I think that they sort of, you know, tease the possibility that he might find another car like that, but I don't recall that he ever does. You know, and, and before he died horribly, it would have been nice if he'd gotten one more chance at a car like that, just because he seems to enjoy it so much. Ah, oh, Glenn. So great. Morales. Every time we see Morales... It's just, I mean, as I keep saying, one of the things about going through the first season, going through all of the seasons, I think, but going through the first season in particular, that's so cool and so interesting is that, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do it, you you see how these characters, you see their inception and you see how they were first introduced, and then you can look back from the perspective of season eight and see just how much they've changed and just how much they haven't changed. And knowing now what happens with Morales, I mean, Morales is, he's kind of a little bit like T-Dog. I mean, he's not so much of a prominent character and clearly, you know, he disappears, at, you know, at the end of season one or toward the end of season one and you don't really see him again until season eight. But he just seems like such a decent guy, you know, and he's got this family and he seems to love his family and he's just, he's a good guy and you like him. You like him almost immediately, even if you don't get a super deep sense of who he is. And it, you know, it just makes me so sad to watch him and, you know, like him the way I did when I first started watching the show and know what's going to happen to him and his family. And especially to know just how coldly Daryl's going to kill him. Because Daryl's fucking vicious by now. And he just murders people and he doesn't give a shit anymore. It's just sad, you know? It's just super sad. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I should say... That that was a creative choice in season eight that I didn't have a problem with necessarily. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was weird, but it was weird in a way that I enjoy. It was again really upsetting that Daryl just fucking killed him the way he did, but it also made a lot of sense in the context in which it happened. So you know, I wasn't upset about it, but it was legitimately sad. And and watching watching season one and kind of becoming reacquainted with this character as he originally was is is just bringing that sadness home to me. And it's yeah. All right, more, more tea, and then I'll, I'll get to what's next. Reunion. Oh, my God. The, the, scene, the scene where Rick, you know, comes back and sees his family. And, you know, the kind of, the reveal. Because, of course, he doesn't come out right away. You know, everybody, everybody meets up with their families, and, you know, hooray, everybody's back. And then Rick is revealed. And it's done so fucking well. It's such a great moment. And it's... It's a moment where you really see first, and this, this is a trend that continues you know, through the whole show up until now, 
This show loves reunions. This show loves reunions as much as it loves killing people. It just adores them, and every time it gets a chance to do them, it does them so well, and it just, it, it rolls around in them like a dog in grass. It's just, you know, you almost get like slow motion people running toward each other across a field. It's great. And you get that here, and I have I have a note here that just says fuck Bear, because Bear McCreary, I mean, ever since Battlestar Galactica, I have had like a deep love-hate relationship with Bear McCreary, because I mean, he's great and beautiful and wonderful, and the stuff he does is incredible, but on the other hand, he hurts me so much, and I hate him for that. And his music in the middle of this scene is just fucking perfect. It's so gorgeous. I love it so much. And, and, and it's, you know, the scene is incredibly well acted. It's incredibly well shot. It's well paced. It's just, it's done really well all across the board. But I think Bear McCreary is probably the best part of it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's just awesome. But there are also, I mean, there are, there are problems with it related to Shane, which I will also, you know, I will talk in more depth about. But one of the, you know, there, there are problems with inconsistent writing in the first and second and third season. Um, I, th I think, you know, again, Gimple gets so much shit from our fandom. I, not all of it is undeserved, but he gets so much shit from, from Bethel fandom and from fandom in general. And I really think that that's just people hating him because that's what the cool kids do. Because most of that inconsistent writing, it doesn't disappear, but it becomes a lot better from season four on. And it doesn't really get worse again. I mean, there are other things about it that, you know, there, there are other dips in quality. There are other things I don't necessarily like about the Gimple era so much. But, but he's very good at consistent writing. And the inconsistent writing of these characters starts right off the bat. And it's not just about the women. I mean, women are written inconsistently and not written well in general. But one of the things that I think is a real weakness right off the bat is... The, the relationship between Shane and Rick, it's it's just, it seems, it seems so uneven and it's so back and forth and you're not, you're not really sure in a lot of cases and I don't think in a good way. You, I think you could do this well, but I don't, I think it's being done in a way that's not necessarily intentional. You're not really sure a lot of the time how much of, how much of Shane's feelings are genuine. You know, he... I, I get the sense that we're supposed to think that there's real conflict here, you know, that he really he really does love Rick. I think you see that a lot in season two, and it's really well done, and it makes his death all the more like Shakespearean levels of tragic. I love Shane's death. It's so great. But, you know, you, you Rick comes back, and Shane is like, oh my god, and you, I think that it's genuine. I think he's really, you know, happy and amazed to see Rick again. Obviously, you know, there's also a problem because, you know, he's been sleeping with Lori, but it's it's just yeah it, it's just Shane is just not consistent and it's one of the reasons why I think right off the bat I didn't like him and I don't really like him still I mean again there are parts of his character that I like but he just bothers me he bothers me for a lot of the same reasons that that Andrea bothers me and it's you know it's not I'm not like Shane I hate you I mean I, he, I do he's, he's a kind of a bad person but also you know I don't blame him for the problems that I have with him. The problem is the writers, it's not him. He's being done a disservice by the writers. I think he could be a better character than he is. Um, but, but yeah, like right off the bat, there is a tension set up there between Shane and Rick and Shane and Laurie and Rick and Laurie that I, I, just, I just don't think is being done terribly well. And I couldn't even really, like I, I'm kind of generally going into my problem with it, but if you ask me to pin down examples of my problem and r specific reasons why I have a problem, 
I would have a hard time doing that. I, th I think that I just, it doesn't feel right, you know? I, I get the sense that a lot of you kind of feel the same, and, and a lot of people in the fandom kind of feel the same, going by fandom comments that I've seen in the past. Um, it's just, it's just, it's a problem. And again, I think that's kind of a shame, because it's, it could be a very, very cool part of the plot. All right, more, t more tea, and, and I'll get to Dale. Dale. I mean, this is, this is the first time you really get a sense of Dale. I like Dale a lot. I mean, I like Dale a lot right from the beginning. I just, I just, I like him. He's, he's a good character. He was a good character in the comics, you know? And he, I think that he's actually, there are very few uh, cases where I actually like the comics more than the show. Uh, Andrea is, is a big one. And not just because they didn't kill her. Well, no, actually, that's not true. They did just kill her stupidly in the comics. Yeah. Nice, Kirkman. Super nice. Anyway, uh, you know, Andrea on the show is even more of a problem. But Dale, I also think in the comics is, is a bit better. For one thing, his relationship with Andrea is a lot better. But yeah, you know, D Dale, I think there are some things... Dale's kind of just thin on the show in a way he's not really in the comics, or at least that I don't recall him being in the comics. But he's also super likable. You know, he's, he's just he just seems like he's another one of those really decent guys. I mean, this is one of the things that I really like about Frank Darabont, is when he writes decency, he writes it really well. The problem is it's mostly only men who get to be that way. You know, I think, I think Frank Darabont does likable men really well. Uh, not so much likable women. I actually have a hard time thinking of likable women at all that he's really done. Most of the women in season one are not especially likable. Lori's not, Andrea's not, really nobody is. Jackie, again, is kind of barely there and then in kind of a deep sense. But the men are, a lot of the men are really likable. T-Dog is great. Love T-Dog so much. Morales is really good. Um, you know, Rick obviously is super likable. Morgan's really likable and Dale is great. And I think a lot of that is the, char is the, is the charisma of the actor who, you know, again, is kind of, it's kind of a Frank Darabonte thing. Um, but right off the bat, yeah, Dale is, Dale is super likable aside from the fact that he gives Glenn shit for something he really shouldn't be giving him that degree of shit for and it's uh, yeah it's 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 cool to see him introduced and and it's also sad to think ahead to how he dies in season two which yeah you know it's I, I I've been very uh very vehement in my view that this show tends to do deaths very well Dale's death is not one of those things I mean I think that the way the stuff around it was handled was pretty good but the death itself was just kind of random and out of nowhere and I mean it wasn't Beth levels of pointless and bad but it was actually you know it of main character deaths it, it's one of the deaths that I think is more like hers than than other deaths are I mean it, okay now now that one we know the reason for because it, you know the actor wanted to be written off the show but it is still you know it's kind of sad thinking for it and, and knowing that that's not going to go too well Carol God Carol oh, it's it's so See, occasionally I kind of feel like maybe it would benefit me to go back and at least skim some of the comics because Carol in the comics is just so fucking bad. Like, I remember that there were moments in the comics where I was like, okay, I'm clearly not meant to like this character very much, but this is just unreasonably bad. Like, the, the thing where she wants to, like, marry Rick and Lori, if I remember correctly. And this, I mean, this... This Carol is being written in a way that, again, it's not, she's not very likable, or at least I didn't find her very likable. She's, you know, she's just kind of weak. And, and I mean, like, weak in a way that I don't think is good. Weak in a way that I don't think is, is, is like, 
is is suggesting that she will have a, a stronger arc. It's another case where Frank Darabont is not handling women well. She's just not, she's not likable, you know? I don't think. I didn't like her very much to start with. I didn't really start liking her until season two. And her and her relationship with Ed and her inability to just like, uh. see, I feel like it's really problematic of me to say this because it, I mean, it comes off as, you know, comes off as blaming, you know, a victim and eventually survivor of spousal abuse as being weak. But, you know, it's, it's how she's written. You know, it's, it's not me looking at her and drawing that conclusion just because, you know, I have some kind of problems with victims of spousal abuse. It's how she, it, it is how she is written. I get the sense that the writers feel like this about her. And that's a big problem. And it, it, is, it is another thing where, you know, I'm looking at her and I'm looking at her scenes in this episode, which are, you know, just, they're just not good. You really get the, you get the sense of, of how bad her relationship with Ed is, and you definitely get a sense of what a scumbag Ed is, but it, none of it feels like it's to good purpose. It's just unpleasant. And it's, I mean, it's another case where, you know, you, you think about Carol and where she is now and how amazing she is and how amazing she's been for seasons. You know, really, again, season, you know, she's really good in season three. She's good in season two. She's really good in season three. Season four is where she really starts to shine and she just keeps shining from there. But she's just, you know, I, it, it makes me glad and it makes me appreciate even more looking back on it now and then thinking forward to what happens to her. It makes me appreciate even more that the writers diverged from the comics here and, and saved her. You know, they they didn't save Andrea. They did Andrea really badly, but they did save Carol. And thank God, you know, just because the, the show would not be as good without her. And I'm glad I could see them setting up kind of a comics arc for her in the first season. And I'm so glad that they went a completely different way with that. You know, it's it's we we dodged a bullet there. We, we really did. OK, more more tea. And then let's let's get to the introduction of my sweet, precious fave. So first of all, something something that uh, is really genuinely funny. There, one of the things I love about Daryl's introduction is how funny it is. Like he's really he's not exactly comic relief, but he kind of comes close to that. Him and him and Glenn are kind of kind of the comic relief in in season one. I I just I kind of love that. And, and, and the comic relief aspect of his introduction starts even before he appears, and it's with like five of them, five of them trying to kill one walker and they're just they're they're so bad at it like they're just wailing on it they don't they clearly don't know what to do and in fact in 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 some ways i think that that's i think that that's not necessarily realistic because you feel like at this point you know they got out of atlanta kind of early and they probably haven't had it's it's pretty clear that walkers don't come near the camp much and you, you get the sense that they haven't had a lot of experience killing walkers. So, you know, eh, it, it stands to reason they wouldn't be really skilled at it like they are now. But also, I mean, I think it's there to kind of clue the readers into the fact that you, I mean, that standard zombie operating procedure is in place here where you have to destroy the brain in order to kill them. And, and you know, this was a way to show that to the audience by Daryl saying, you fucking idiots, why don't you know this yet? But on the other hand, I don't think it's realistic that they wouldn't get that by now. You'd think that even if they weren't good at aiming, they would know that you gotta get the head, not just take the head off, but you actually need to destroy the brain in some capacity. And yeah, it's, it's funny as hell, but it also kind of bugged me. 
It, it just uh, it, it didn't it didn't ring true. It didn't ring true to to me. And it's I mean it's another situation in which Daryl is just completely right to be exasperated. Daryl is. Daryl is actually a little inconsistent. Everybody's inconsistent in the first season, Christ. But Daryl is a little inconsistent in the first season as well. And one of the ways in which he's inconsistent is, you know, he's he's kind of played as this, I mean, he's kind of played as this redneck asshole who's, you know, I don't know, probably not that bright. You know, like maybe he's got this sort of survivalist common sense, but he's he's not, he's never been book smart, clearly. He's, you know, you can probably draw some pretty good conclusions about his lack of formal education. You know, I, I headcanon him as never even graduating high school because I just think it's likely that he wouldn't have. But yeah, he's, he's you know, he's kind of, he's not exactly a shining example of intelligence written as I think, and he's clearly, you know, he's clearly just flying off the handle all over the place, which I'll talk about again in a minute. But on the other hand, he's so practical in this scene. Like, he's just, he's totally on the ball, and he's very sharp, and he's just, you know, he's doing what's got to be done. And he's absolutely right to be exasperated with them, and it's really funny. It's just, you know, it's just like, fuck, like, how do you not know this by now? This is just so basic. This is like one of the first rules you should know in the zombie apocalypse. Um, and it's, oh God, he's so snarky. I love it so much. One of the things that, um, one of the things is, that's a phrase I use a lot. Uh, one of the things that I love about Daryl at the beginning of season four, and it makes me so, so sad that we haven't really seen that since then, since he lost Beth and just became incredibly depressed. It's, uh, he's such a, he's such a troll. You know, he's he's so when he's happy, he's so snarky. He fucks with people and it's great. It's not not like in a manipulative guile way, but he just he just likes to fuck with people. And and you get a sense of even though he's not happy at this point, you know, you get a sense of that snarkiness. He's he's got some wit. You wouldn't think of somebody like Daryl as witty, but he really is. He's really funny. And you, you know, you see that some in season 4 and then you never see it again really. He's still, you know, he's kind of funny now and then in terms of having a sharp wit, but he's not, not like, not kind of happy trolling people he likes. Um, but you, you get a little sense of that here, and it's just so cute and so funny, and I love it. The deer. I mean, okay, the, the cut, maybe we can just cut around this part, like it's mold on cheese. That's that's another thing. It's, I mean, I, don't, I found it pretty funny. But the thing about deer and how long he's been tracking this deer and how upset he is that now he doesn't have this deer anymore... I mean, okay, I don't know what it would be like in the zombie apocalypse. Maybe this is a piece of world building that I'm just missing. I don't know, maybe things are different in Georgia. But at least up here, you know, in the mid-Atlantic coast, there are, you can't take a step without hitting a deer. Like, there are, they are fucking everywhere. Like, I live in a, I live in a town called Beltsville. I just kind of semi-doxed myself. I live in a town called Beltsville, which is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit north and east of D.C., and it's a town, it's a suburb of DC. So, you know, it's a typical suburb. There's this, you know, the streets without a whole lot of traffic and there's, you know, single family homes all over the place. And it's, but it's also a little strange in that it's near the Agricultural Research Center, which is just a bunch of fields and, you know, places where they have cows with holes in their sides. So you can reach in and screw around with their stomachs. It's fucking creepy, by the way. So it's also kind of rural in a weird way, but where I live, it's mostly just suburban. Periodically, you just see deer walking down the street. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, I, 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 at dusk, one time I was out in my driveway, and I looked down at the foot of the driveway, and there was this buck. You know, like, multiple-point buck, whatever, however you judge that, with, like, you know, a mature rack of antlers. Just walking down the street, and it looked to me like, sup? 
I've seen deer in my front yard, and I don't live in like one of those places that borders a state park like my parents. There's deer fucking everywhere. I mean, they're pests. You know, they're a problem. Their population is out of control. You hunt them in part to, you know, maintain some level of population reasonableness. How hard is it to find a deer? You know, that should be like a day-long thing. You go out at dusk in, in a field near a road, and you just kill you a couple deer. It can't be that difficult. I don't I this is another world building it's it's so petty and it's so tiny but it's another world building thing where like like what the fuck like deer should not be this hard to get you should not have to hunt for days to find a deer Daryl especially not you who's you know supposedly really super skilled at hunting yeah anyway this yeah seems seems wrong to me I kind of get why it's there in the story but it, it just kind of doesn't seem right, All right more tea and, and I'll get to more Daryl Okay, Daryl, um, this is something that I think has been noted by other people because it's, I don't know how much of this the writers intended because I don't, maybe I'm misremembering this. There's a, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that I don't have the best memory for, but I seem to recall that Daryl was never intended to be a big character at all. Like the, he, he was, Norman Reedus is just so charismatic that they were like, all right, this, this guy is suddenly for some reason a fan favorite, so we should make him a bigger deal. But I don't think he was ever meant to be a big deal. So I, I don't know how much of this was intended to kind of become deeper characterization, but I think that it's worth noting that Merle is just like a piece of shit and is dangerous and you know that legitimately was a threat to the group and they were pretty justified in leaving him behind the way they did and you don't get the sense that he's ever been particularly useful for anything he's just kind of there daryl's busting his ass like daryl clearly cares he's you, yeah you could say he's hunting for himself too and for merle and you know when he has the squirrels you don't get the sense he's gonna share them you know he's he's just like you know hey merle i got some squirrels to stew them up now granted i don't know how you're gonna feed a whole camp with a couple of squirrels into stew but yeah he doesn't seem like he's about to share his squirrels but if he's hunting a deer he's hunting probably for everybody and he's been out there for days or you know at least like a day or two it's pretty clear because he's out of, he's gone overnight and is he's 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 working you know you get the sense he's working as hard as anybody to keep that thing running as you know maybe he's even working harder than most people and i do, i just i don't think you do that just to fit in long enough to rob a place i think you do that when you really care and one of the things that we know about daryl now is that when he cares he just cares immensely daryl has two settings he doesn't give a shit at all which is you know more and more how he feels these days or he cares so much it like destroys him inside he cares so much and i think that that's how he's feeling about the group he just cares and I think that some of that is, you know, he's, his natural tendency is to want to be part of a group. He's, he's, not, he's, he's kind of a, a, been a lone wolf by default just because of, you know, a lot of unfortunate things in his past. And he's not well socialized and he's not good at, at being around people. And, you know, it's pretty clear growing up he was almost like a feral kid. But he, he wants to be part of a group so much. It, he needs to be part of a family so much. It means everything to him. And he's clearly been like that for, like, most of his life. So he has a chance to be part of a group here. And whatever Merle wanted to do with this group, I think that Daryl probably never did. You know, I, I never get the sense. Daryl, well, we'll, talk, we'll talk in a minute about Daryl's tendency to violence, which I think is, is in a, another important part of his character. But I don't think Daryl ever wanted to rob this group. 
you know, Merle, I think just, Merle is awful, and I think Merle was always like, Merle never wanted to fit in. Merle was always about robbing the group and, and taking what they could get and then getting out. But I, I, I think that, I wonder if Daryl had tried to talk Merle out of it at all before this. Probably not, because I don't feel like Daryl has that much spine. I, I, don't, I don't like how I'm saying that. Daryl is so attached to his brother that I don't see him going against his brother that way. You know, I, I think I think Daryl just kind of worships his brother in a really unhealthy way. You, I mean, you get a better sense of that kind of in season two, especially why and how it's so unhealthy. I cannot imagine he wanted to rob the camp. And it's not that I think he likes a lot of people in there, and it's not that I think that he, like, enjoys their company, but his tendency is to want to make this work in any way that he can, even if he's not even if he isn't finding it easy to be around people, and even if he doesn't even think these people are pleasant. So I, I, think, I think that his, his attempt to kind of take care of the camp and provide for people is genuine. I think that's just a deep-seated instinct on his part. And I think that, again, it is really worth noting how hard he's working right from the start to kind of help take care of these people. It's in, in a very subtle way, kind of in the sense that you got really quick but sort of subtle characterization in the second episode, you get a very deep sense of him right away. Or at least, again, like I don't know how much the writers intended that, but you could interpret it that way. That he seems like this jackass who flies off the handle and probably isn't that bright, but he's also working so hard. And that's sweet. And it's one of the things that I think, you know, again, Norman Reedus is charismatic as hell. Like, he has seen chemistry with a rock. But also, I think it's, you know, that, that genuineness, that lack of guile, and that, that real desire to work and to, to try to make things try to make things good with these people who, again, he probably doesn't even really like very much, and who clearly do not like him. It's, it's an important part of his character. And it really carries through up to season eight. You know, his, his, his default setting is protector and provider. And even in this case, right off the bat, he's doing that. And I, yeah, I just, I think that's super important. Uh, more, more tea than him and Rick. Cause, oh my God. Oh, the epic love story of Daryl Dixon and Rick Grimes. Oh God, loud bird. Uh, Julie, tell me what that is. If, if you, if you remember, it's, um, Rick, God another one of those situations where I, I love watching what's going on with the show because I love thinking forward to what things how things end up being especially God especially in season seven where one of my favorite scenes on the whole show where Rick and Dale reunite and they have that incredible hug oh God and and but you see how they meet and it's you know I kind of I kind of refer to Daryl's meeting Jesus as a zombie apocalypse meet cute. Because, I mean, I don't ship them, but it is kind of a zombie apocalypse meet cute. It just is. And Daryl's meeting Rick is a kind of another one. You know, it's just, it's so offbeat and it's so off kilter. And they clearly, I mean, it's like enemies to lovers. They do not like each other and it's so cute. And, you know, Rick is, Rick is clearly not wanting to get on his bad side to start with, but it obviously goes bad real quick because of what Rick does did and you know you, you you see that and then you think ahead even just to season two where daryl is forming a really deep and, and and profound attachment to rick emotionally and gets shit from his brain merle over that but here he's just like he's at rick isn't at his throat but daryl's at rick's throat right off the bat but by the way it's i kind of headcanon that in part as how Daryl is like gut level reacting to the fact that Rick is wearing a, a you know a police uniform, 
Like, I, Daryl says he has never been in prison. Like, never be even been in lockup. Or, like, never even gone to jail, like, overnight. I, I, by the way, that is such a great little characterization detail, too. Like, you know Merle's been in prison. Merle, Merle says he's been in the stockade. You know, he, Merle's been in prison in, in one form or another. You know Merle's been hauled into jail for, you know, a night or two. Daryl never has. How the hell has he been hanging out with the people he's probably been hanging out with and never, never been in prison? That, I mean, that again just says so much about him. It, sa- it says about how restrained he actually can be, even though he doesn't appear restrained in season one, and about how smart he is. You know, he's, again, like, there's no guile in him, there's no manipulation, but he's very sharp. You know, he's street smart and other kinds of smart. Um, but but I, I also think that his relationship with police is probably very antagonistic. You know, not not just, not in the sense of, you know, this, this oh, oh no, I might get arrested by this guy, but just these people fucking hassle me. And I think that that's fair. You know, Daryl's not black, you know, so he's not getting hassled in the same way that black people tend to be hassled by police. But, you know, he's poor white trash. And police don't tend to, police in general don't tend to be on the side, I think, of marginalized people. And if you're, if you're like, you know, really poor white trash, you are also marginalized. It's a different kind of marginalization, but you are. You know, economic inequality is a thing. Class inequality is a thing. And everything's intersectional. And, you know, white people, lower class white people experience marginalization too. And, I, and, and that means that, you know, institutions, social institutions tend to be oriented against them or at least tend not to serve them. And, you know, it's, I, I think that your relationship with police is probably better if you're white regardless. You know, even if, even if you're, you know, on the wrong end of a lot of class inequality. But probably Daryl's been hassled a lot by cops in his life just for the fuck of it, you know? He's just assumed immediately to be a criminal element. You know, not not entirely without justification, given his brother. But I, I think that he just, you know, he sees a cop and he's like, this person's going to fucking hassle me. You know, this person's just going to screw with me because they can. And not even, like, consciously he's thinking that about Rick, but just, like, you know, gut level. Like, oh, shit, this person's going to be a problem. And, you know, he doesn't like Rick because of what Rick has done. I, you know, and again, very fairly. I wouldn't like Rick either for that. But also I just think he doesn't like Rick right off because Rick's a cop. And that's another thing that, that makes their how their relationship develops interesting over time because of Daryl's relationship with authority, which is really complicated, you know? On the one hand, Daryl doesn't seem comfortable with authority. He kind of, you know, bucks it and he doesn't like being told what to do. On the other hand, Daryl desperately needs to be told what to do. You know, he's not a leader. He's, he has, has the capacity to be part of a leadership group. You see that in season four when he's part of like the, you know, the council at the prison. He can, he can kind of play the role of a leader in a lot of circumstances. He can be like a leader in combat. But in terms of being a leader of a society, no, that's just not what he does. It's not what he wants to do. It's just not how his personality is constructed. So Daryl's suspicious of authority. He doesn't like authority. I especially think he doesn't like traditional institutional authority. But on the other hand, he really kind of needs authority in his life. And it's one of the reasons why I think that he, you know, he, he really comes to rely on Rick almost. It, and in, in a way that isn't entirely healthy. I mean, something that I love about his relationship with Rick, because it's complicated, is that I think their relationship is not really entirely healthy. And especially not now. You know, now it's clearly taken a turn for the bad. And we'll see what happens with that in season nine. But yeah, it's, it's right off the bat, it's complicated and great and, I, I, and cute. You know, it's, 
this, I want to I want to talk about how he reacts to finding out that Merle's been left on the roof. But but it's it's there is because there's kind of a weird little funny comical edge to how he's introduced. There's there is you know kind of a, a almost like a and this is me just being like Daryl. Eh, but there's kind of a sweetness I think in him right off the bat too. And it's it is in how he is clearly reacting to intense emotion that's like is worth taking note of and let me hang on let me have another swallow of tea and i'll get to that so daryl and intense emotion so much of daryl's identity and again i would love to know how much of this was intended by the writers right off the bat but so much of daryl's identity is wrapped up in his you know in the fact that he's a child abuse survivor you know a survivor of emotional and psychological abuse for sure right off the bat and Daryl handles emotion, powerful emotion, by lashing out. Powerful negative emotion by, by lashing out. Powerful positive emotion, he just doesn't know what to do with. He kind of freezes. And something that somebody, uh, you know, mentioned on my blog the other day was, you know, how, how heartbreaking and sweet at the same time it is that when he's, you know, especially when he's reuniting with somebody who he really loves, he kind of like almost burrows into them. Like, he's, he's looking for safety and comfort from them, physically. And it's, oh, it's just beautiful, and it's also kind of horrible. So, so he, just kind of, he just kind of curls inward when emotion is really positive, but overwhelming. He just doesn't know how to express it. But he doesn't know how to express negative emotion healthily either. So he, just, he either tends to completely shut down, or he lashes out violently, and he does that here. You know, right away he's swinging at people, and you know he's, he's he's swinging blades around, and you know really he's seeming like he's ready to do lethal violence to people. I don't think he ever intends to do that. You know, he's when he's waving an axe at people, you know, toward the end of the season. I don't think he means to kill anybody. I think he's just he's just he's barking. You know, I don't think he's he doesn't really mean to bite. He's just barking. I think if he really hurt somebody, he'd be kind of horrified. But. All he knows to do when he's angry is, is, to, is to be violent and to try and intimidate people. And, you know, I think that's kind of a defense mechanism, too, because if he can intimidate people, they'll back off and they'll stop hurting him. And all he knows when something like this happens to him is that he's being hurt. Like, again, he's, he's reacting on, the, on an instinctive gut level. He's not thinking this through. He just knows that he's being hurt and he wants to make the hurting stop. So, you know, he's taking swings at Rick and he's attacking other people and, you know, Shane has to get him in a headlock and it's kind of, again, it's kind of funny in a really dark, sad way. I, I, I don't think so much of that is the writing as it is just Norman Reedus being Norman Reedus. But yeah, he's, 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 he, Merle was not in control of himself and Daryl is not in control of himself either. But there's just a, there's a childlike aspect of it to him that there is not to Merle. I wish you got a better sense of who Merle was because Merle is also, a, you know, an abuse survivor, clearly. That's explicit. Um, Merle's been through some awful stuff with her father, too. But I don't think that... And maybe this is just because Merle is an older sibling. There are a lot of things about the family, more complex family dynamics of abuse that I don't know, even though I've, I have experienced some of it personally. Um, I don't know that I'd consider myself an abuse survivor, but I've experienced familial abusive situations. But Merle seems like a guy who has processed this differently. And immediately Daryl comes across, you know, you don't know how old he is really. Norman has said that he kind of, at least in the beginning of the show, Daryl's kind of in his like mid-30s. Daryl does not act like a guy in his mid-30s. Daryl acts like a teenager. 
Daryl is just, you know, again, he's emotionally, he's emotionally just completely not in control of anything. He doesn't know how to handle a group. He's not well socialized. He just seems young. You know, he seems like an adolescent. And I, ah, I would love to ask them how much of this they intended to do. I think that, again, I'm sorry, rambling dead. I think that you can see his scars right off. I mean, you can definitely see that he has scars in season two. I don't remember if you can see them in season one, but that to me suggests that the writers like planned him to be an abuse survivor right off the bat. Like they, they kind of, they knew that that was part of his character and they were at least seeding it with the thought of maybe doing something with it later, even if they didn't have hard plans for it. But Daryl has, Daryl has processed his abuse in a way that, that has caused him to experience like severe arrested development, psychologically and emotionally. And he just acts like a kid. And it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking, and it becomes even more heartbreaking when you see that, you know, he's, he's lashing out angrily, but really what he's doing is crying. And that, that's the thing that I think really drives home the fact that he's not emotionally mature at all. He's not, he's, he's a kid. Like, like Carol says, he's, he's like a big kid. And once he's calmed down a little bit and he's not, you know, just flailing around angrily, he's crying. And you wouldn't, I think, expect a guy with his background to just cry openly in front of people, but he does. Daryl, Daryl cries more than I think a lot of people on the show, or at least just pours out his emotion that way. People, people on the show have been crying all the time now because, you know, constantly awful things keep fucking happening to them. But Daryl's crying manifests in a particular way, that, in a way that is unique to Daryl. And I love that you see that immediately. Daryl's reaction to being angry and upset is to start crying. And it's, yeah, it just, it just, again, it drives home how emotionally immature he is. And it's, I think it's such an important part of his character. And it's, it's something that I, I don't think he was my fave immediately, but looking back on it, that complexity, that immediate complexity, or at least something you could interpret as complexity is one of the things about him that I end up liking so much. It's, it's not that, it's not that he's a likable guy in the way T-Dog is, you know, in that kind of pure, you know, cinnamon roll way that T-Dog is. Uh, or even Dale, but he's likable because he's complex. And it's it's just, it's great. It's great. I love it. I really love this episode. There are things about it that bug me, but yeah. Oh, side note here that, you know, I'm looking at my notes. Merle's history of military service is referenced, you know, at a couple points. It's especially referenced in his kind of, you know, rambling, semi-delirious, you know, retelling of this this time in when he was, you know, in the military that got him thrown in the stockade. But Merle went into the military, you know, and Merle clearly did not do well there, but he did experience a kind of structure in the military. And I think that that might have to do partly with the fact that he doesn't seem to have the same emotional immaturity exactly that Daryl does. You know, Daryl Daryl was never in the military. Daryl has probably never experienced structure at all. It's one of the reasons why I think that he desperately needs it. He wants it. He seeks it out. He's never had that kind of structure. And yeah, thinking about it, I think it's probably one of the reasons why Merle is a bit different from him in that, in that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. T-Dog. I just, I just have, in my notes, I just have T-Dog and then a bunch of hearts. <laughs> I mean, there's not much deep for me to say about that. T-Dog is just fucking great. The, the way that he's like, I mean, and you know, it's, it's like T-Dog, 
this isn't, you don't really need to take that much responsibility for this. Again, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a mark of how, what a good person he is that he is. But on the other hand, it's like, fuck Merle, you know? And I'm saying this as somebody who loves Merle. I'm saying this as somebody who considers Merle like their problematic fave, but fuck Merle, you know, like for real. T-Dog did what he could and what happened happened. And it's, I don't think it's really his fault. I don't think he has anything to apologize for, anything really to take responsibility for, but he does. You know, and, and there's, there is a subtly problematic aspect about that. There's a subtly problematic aspect to that where, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of the black guy who has to, who steps up morally more than the white guy. It's, it's kind of sort of an, a part of respectability politics. You know, the, the, the standards of personal morality for the black guy have to be higher. And that's just, it's just, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's a subtle thing, but it's another thing in here that I think is a bit problematic regarding how it deals with race. But on the other hand, you just love T-Dog because T-Dog's wonderful and beautiful and again, like a perfect cinema role. And yeah, this is T-Dog. Um, interesting that Morgan is still kind of being referenced here. One of the things that this show does, not this show, because again, this is something I think is increasingly less of a problem, especially in the Gimple era. We see what happens, we'll see what happens with Angela Kang, but there are, there are a number of things that show up in season one that just kind of disappear and are never referenced again. And you see at the beginning of season two that Morgan and the need to keep in touch with Morgan and the walkie-talkie as a means of connection with Morgan, that that's still, important, that's still an important part of Rick's motivation. It's one of the things he has a hard time leaving behind when they set out for, you know, when they really leave at the outskirts of Atlanta and, you know, end up at the farm. But the, the fact that one of Rick's main motivations for going back after the guns is to get that walkie-talkie and be able to stay in touch with Morgan. You know, I, I, like, I like that, although we haven't seen Morgan in a couple of episodes, I like that Morgan is still present. Especially given what an important character Morgan has ended up being. You know, really long after he ended up, long after he kind of left the show, he, he returned and kind of became a, a moral and thematic backbone to the show in a lot of ways. So you see Morgan established here still as kind of in the background, a very important part of Rick's journey in, in, in terms of his characterization. And yeah, I just think that's cool. I mean, if you know me, you know that Morgan is one of my favorites anyway. I just love Morgan. But yeah, it's just something else I want to take note of is neat. Something I have after Morgan, um, completely unrelated. How does grass go so far underground in Minecraft? I was playing Minecraft while I was watching this and like I was down like so many levels in this fucking mine and like I found this patch of dirt and there was just grass growing on it. There's no light down there. As her grass. The fuck Minecraft? Makes no sense. Anyway, women doing laundry. It's, this is another, ah, this is another, something I said in the first episode of this is that this show has problems with gender and I don't feel like the show has problems with gender in a way that it is using to comment on gender problems. I think the show just has gender problems. This is an, this is a part where I think that it's kind of flailing clumsily at, at commenting on gender problems, but at the same time, it's just kind of reinforcing and reproducing the gender problems. Where, you know, women are, the women are all doing the laundry and Shane's fucking looking for frogs, like a loser. And, or like a guy, you know, trying to awkwardly lay a claim on this kid as his son. And I think that's meant to be implied. But I don't know if it's necessarily that effective. 
but yeah, it's, and you know, the women are like, I'm Andrea's like, I'm not so sure about the division of labor. But then Ed shows up. And I hate this. I hate this so much. It's so shitty. You know, Ed is, Ed is abusing Carol and being terrible to Carol. And the women are like, you know, wait a minute. This isn't right. And then they just end up getting in a slap fight with Ed. You know, it's like three against one. These women could fucking destroy him if they wanted to. You got nails. Even if you're not going to throw punches, like you got nails and shit probably and they're just they're just having a slap fight with ed and it's just so pathetic and it's just written super badly and you know shane is the one who has to step up and you know step in and and start wailing on ed and on the one hand i kind of get why they're doing that i think the main purpose for that is to show that shane is kind of on the edge shane is shane is really kind of not doing well emotionally uh it's he's kind of you know, the, it's, it's the dark side of what he's doing with Carl, I think, in terms of, like, kind of to, trying to draw him close and kind of maintain some sort of a father-son relationship with him in a, in a weird, uncomfortable way. But on the other hand, you know, Shane is the one who comes riding to the rescue. You have these three, three women who really could step up and protect one of their own. You, know, you could have a great girls protecting girls bit here. And instead, you just have, you know, women getting into a slap fight with an abuser, and then a man comes in and saves them. And it's fucking bad. Like, I hate it. The the gender problems that start out on this show totally continue here. They're, they're, it's kind of like what I said about how the men are likable and the women just tend to not be. Um, when there are mostly just men on screen, no gender problems. I mean, no, no gender problems except that there's no women on screen. You know, you just, nothing overt. You just, it's just men running around. The second you bring in women, and especially at the second you start dealing with gender and sexual politics on this show, it just gets bad. Like, it's just, ah, I'm, I'm so glad Frank Darabont isn't here anymore. I can only begin to imagine what the show would be like if he'd stuck around. It'd probably be a lot more like the comics, to be honest with you. Although Frank Darabont does take the show away from the comics in some ways that I think are, are useful and set up good stuff for after he leaves. But this scene, I hate. I hate this scene. And I hate how it, you know, it, 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 could, it could be another way of showing just how beaten down Carol is in a way that makes her rise in strength even more effective. And I do think that kind of happens. But I think it happens in spite of how she's being written here, not because of it. Because, she, again, she just comes off as being written in a way that's disrespectful. You know, being written in a way that makes her weak, in a way that's not good. And it, uh, I just have problems with it, you know? I don't know, I don't know if these problems are fair. These, this, this is all a matter of interpretation, and this might just be me being biased in a particular direction. But I just don't, I don't like it. It's not comfortable. I've got problems with it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. And why, okay, like this is another, this is an example I think where I kind of, some of this might be me, the fact that I was playing Minecraft while I was watching this and maybe I wasn't paying as close attention at a couple of moments as I should have been. But this is, you know, this is, this is a thing where what I'm saying, you know, can sound misogynist and, and, and really not good, but I'm, what I am commenting on is the way the writing is done, is how I feel like the writers how I, what I feel like the attitude of the writers was, not necessarily my attitude, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm just justifying something bad. Maybe this actually isn't good of me, but Lori's a bitch. Yeah, you know, again, I really want to emphasize, I love Lori. I hate seeing her written like this. Lori is justified in being angry in a lot of these cases, but the way that, the way that anger is written, it just comes off as bitchy and shrewish and petty. 
you know, she, she, she comes down, and the way she is with Shane, like, I only realized when she says it right out that one of the reasons why she's mad at Shane is because she feels like Shane lied to her about Rick. But where is she getting that from? Like, not to defend Shane or anything, because God knows Shane doesn't really deserve much defending, but I think that it's fair to give Shane, especially if you've been sleeping with Shane, and especially if you've kind of been trusting Shane to take care of you and your kid, and especially if you haven't seen much evidence that Shane's a scumbag, even if we all kind of know that Shane's a scumbag. You know, from Laurie's perspective, I don't see why she would necessarily think this. You know, this is her husband's best friend. She's known him forever, and he's been taking care of her. So it's weird to me that she wouldn't give him the benefit of the doubt. I think it's completely reasonable. And in fact, I think it's on. I think it's true. Shane really didn't know. You know, Shane Shane did what in the moment he thought he had to do. Shane kind of figured that Rick was, Rick was kind of dead already. And I don't think that's unjustified. I don't think that's unfair. I probably would have done the same thing in his situation. I probably would have just cut my losses and run. You know, this is a very close friend of mine, but he's in a coma. Very possibly will never wake up. World is going to hell. I've got people who are alive and conscious right now, and I have to worry about them. And it's, yeah, it's just, Shane really thought Rick was dead. Shane was trying to move on. Shane was trying to take care of his shit. And Shane's also a scumbag. But, you know, it's, I don't think that her anger at him while on the one hand is somewhat understandable, is overwritten and I think not well justified. You know, they, they could have they could have taken that, but people get angry at, at stuff for reasons that aren't necessarily well justified. Like I, I get angry at people and they don't deserve it. And like, I'm just angry, I'm angry and I'm looking for a target and I get angry at them and they don't deserve it. And that's shitty, but that's just kind of how people are. And you could kind of, you know, say that Lori's doing that because, again, Lori's a person and this is kind of how people are. And she's been through a lot of really emotional, intense shit. And, you know, her husband's just come back from the dead. And I could see that some of the ways in which she might be emotionally dealing with that wouldn't be entirely positive, especially not where Shane's concerned. Because Shane's a guy who told her that her husband was dead. But at the same time, I think the show is not justifying her anger well. And the show is not writing her anger well. And it's very unfair to her because it makes her come off as a complete bitch. And it's, you know, seeing like this, seeing things like this, this, this fandom has a problem with misogyny, or at least a lot of people in this fandom have a problem with misogyny. And this fandom in general has, you know, I, I came to this fandom late. I came to the fandom long after Lori was dead. But it's been my sense, talking to people who were in the fandom for a long time and looking back over some stuff that people said a while ago, and again, maybe this isn't fair, but it's my sense that people were really gross about Lori. People, people did like call her a bitch and a shrew and said that she was, you know, she was being unfair to Rick and she's not. Rick is a shitty husband. But it's, yeah, it's just, she's written in a way that makes me, well, it doesn't excuse how people talked about her. I look at it and I see where they're coming from. You know, the show, the show I think fed, the way she was written fed what they were inclined to feel already. And that's not good. You know, writers, that's really not good. I, it's, it's another, I hate the whole scene by the quarry. And I hate the scene because of how, you know, the women deal with Ed. And I hate the scene because of how Lori behaves. And it's, it's you know, I, I, I feel like I'm supposed to feel sorry for Shane. And I don't want to feel sorry for Shane. Shane's a scumbag. But at the same time, I kind of find myself feeling sorry for Shane. I don't, I don't like anything about it. It's just shitty. It's just really shitty and not good. Okay, the, the, the last thing that I, I want to 
you know mentioned it's 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 kind of a it's not really a, a, a new thing. It's kind of a return to what I was talking about with Daryl, you know, expressing emotion in a way that's really emotionally mature. You know, they, they get to the roof and there's another scene that's really well built and where Bear is doing a fantastic job. And by the, by the way, uh, quick rambling aside, Bear's music in the first season really reminds me of 28 Days Later. I mean, I, I already mentioned, you know, how I kind of feel like in the premise and in a lot of the way in which how this is kind of done, it reminds me of 28 Days Later, which was, I think, one of, if not the first big piece of media to kind of launch the new zombie virus zeitgeist. But the the heavy, you know, kind of swelling kind of guitar thing that you, you, you get in a lot of these scenes, go back and listen to like the soundtrack for 28 Days Later and I think you'll see what I mean. I don't know, just, a, you know, kind of an interesting, like, point, I think, that suggests that there was a lot of influence from that movie on the show. But Daryl, you know, Daryl, Daryl sees the hands. It's, it's, oh, God, it's so gruesome and so great. And he's yelling and stalking back and forth, but his, his primary mode of expression is to cry. It fucking breaks my heart. Oh, Daryl. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm excited that we finally met Daryl. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. If you don't like Daryl, I'm sorry. I'm just going to be rambling about Daryl through the rest of the show. <laughs> but it, it, I love how Daryl is introduced. I love how Daryl's built up right from the start. And I am so excited to go through the rest of season one, kind of following his development in particular. I promise I won't focus too much on him. But yeah, it's just, it's great. It's great. I, I, I've been talking a lot about stuff in this episode that I hated, but there's also so much that I love. I've been looking forward to getting to it and I'm, you know, I'm excited to kind of, I'm excited to kind of go through the rest of the season now that we've really settled in and gotten a sense of these characters and we're moving the plot forward. And, um, you know, I'm sorry we won't see Merle again until season three, but, uh, well, you know, we'll get that little look at him in season two, even if it's just Daryl's brain yelling at him. Okay. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say. Seriously, though, why is grass growing so far underground in Minecraft? Any of you out there play Minecraft, if you could explain this to me, I'd be very pleased. But yeah, I'm going to let you go. Uh, I've been talking for, you know, over an hour. I'm um, going to edit this. I'm going to get it posted. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I've been getting a lot of really positive feedback. Uh, seems like you guys are really enjoying, you know, what I'm, you know, what I'm doing here. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's a cool way to kind of get through the hiatus uh, as I'm, you know, watching filming spoilers and stuff. Um, you know, if you, if you have anything that you'd like to see me do more of, less of on this, you know, let me know. Uh, you know, if you, if you have ways that you'd like to see the, you know, the show <laughs> develop. Uh, if you have things that you'd like me to specifically focus on. If you have questions you want me to address, uh, get in touch with me. Uh, send me an ask on Tumblr. Send me a message on Tumblr. Shoot me an email or whatever at sunnyds at gmail.com. And however you want to get in touch with me, you know, get in touch with me on Twitter. I don't really care. But if you have comments about, you know, the show, if you have feedback, if you have anything that you'd kind of like to see happen, uh, let me know. I'm doing this as fun for me, but I'm also doing it because some people seem to want to hear it. And, you know, I want to make it fun for you guys. Uh, so, yeah, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your support so far. And God willing, we're all still here next week. I'll speak to you then. Bye.